Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We have been looking at the parables that Jesus has given us, the kingdom parables, uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, last week we began looking at the twin parables, as many scholars and commentators call them, of the mustard seed and the leaven. We looked last week at the mustard seed, and I suggest to you that that was a, a beautiful picture of of an outline of our, our Christian life uh, that is illustrated there, and the primary premise is that which seems insignificant and small, like the mustard seed, which is representation of the gospel, that which may not really be impressive to other people, that packs a lot of power and actually moves into being something of practical benefit uh, for God's kingdom and even to the people uh, of the world. And now we come to the uh, twin parable, or as I said last week, more of a, the marriage, married partner, uh, because they go together, and yet you can, they're distinct. They have uh, something uh, individual in each. Um, they I, they def define one another, uh, but they also uh, are distinct. And so we come to that passage this morning in Matthew 13, verse 33. Let's go to God's Word. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his words. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to these very simple words, I pray that you would help us to understand that everything you speak to us is profound, important, practical, and helps us to understand you. I pray that as we unpack this, we would come to understand what you would have us to see, the reason that Jesus has given this parable to us, uh, that you would renew our minds, you would reform our lives, uh, you would grip our hearts, you would change us, that we would move more toward being like Jesus. Father, we pray because we are in need of you to be at work. We pray with confidence because not only have you promised, we've seen the evidence of it. Lord, we pray because we need your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to prepare our hearts, the seed of the gospel may take root and bear the fruit. So, Lord, as we study your word, as we give our ear to you, to honor you and to grow, we also trust that you will be at work during this time. I pray this in the great confidence, in the incomparable name of Jesus Christ, who is the word incarnate. Amen. Let me ask you a question as I begin this morning. How influential are you? you know, if I was to go around the room and ask you individually, or if I was to go around town and ask people that I met on the street someplace and ask them that very same question, how influential are you? I suspect that most would probably respond, some with a false humility, but most sincerely. Not very. If I press a little further and I was to ask you, who are the influential? Who, are, who is influential? I imagine that I would probably hear a common litany of names, people that are political leaders, the rich and the famous and the beautiful, people perhaps that have made breakthroughs that you're seeing in the news. They'll, they'll come, you'll hear of them for a time, but because you're hearing of them, you're assuming that 
they're making great contributions, contributions that you likely never will make, that I probably will never make. The kinds of people that would make any kind of list of who are the most influential people. Time Magazine uh, put a list out of the most influential people. They do it every year. Uh, and the most influential 100 people of 2012. And I was looking at that list this week, and some of them I've heard of, some of them I haven't. Some of them cause me to worry greatly for our culture if they're the most influential people. Some of them have entertained me. But as I thought about it, I realized that, you know what, not anybody on that list has actually had a real influence on my life. I've never even met any of the people on that list. I'm not likely to meet anybody on the list. And so while they may be examples of what to do or what not to do, while they may amuse me for whatever it is that they do, they're not likely to make much of an impact on my life or, frankly, probably on most of your lives. That led me to begin thinking about the people who have made an influence on my life, who have impacted me in some way. And one thing that I came to realize is, you know, not one person who's made an impact on my life will ever be put on a list like that. If I was to begin to list all the people who have had the greatest influences on my life and just name them, few or any of them would be familiar to you. I imagine if I ask you to begin thinking about who has had the impact in your life, who has influenced you, you would say the same. You may know a few people that have become prominent and, and they've had some influence on you, but by and large, the people who have had the greatest impact on our lives, the people that have influenced us the most, are not the rich and famous, not the powerful, not necessarily uh, those who we would think. They're just ordinary people. And they've had an impact on our lives in, in very important ways. Reminded me of an old African proverb that says, if you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. And I think that's pertinent for us this morning. Because I believe God has called us, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we are to be making an impact, we are to have an influence on our neighbors and ultimately throughout the world. And I believe this passage doesn't just suggests that, but it actually gives us an illustration of how that takes place if we unpack it. And I know the idea that we're supposed to have an influence may be somewhat daunting for us at times because when we compare ourselves to other people, people with greater affluence, greater notoriety, greater power, we may feel that we don't measure up. When we consider that there are people out there who are trying to have influences, whether they consider themselves evil or whether they are evil or not, that their desire is to have an impact that is 180 degrees different than the impact that we as Christians would like to have on our community and in the world, and see that some of them are powerful and they would be on the list of those who are influential, we may wonder whether we can measure up or, or what chance that we might have to make anything happen. But I believe the promise of this parable is very simple. Is that the gospel by its very nature is already at work. And it may be small and seeming insignificant in comparison with other philosophies or whatever may seem to be powers that shape the world. But the reality is this little gospel will have a big effect. And it is having a big effect on us and in the world even as we sit here today. 
let's unpack it for a moment because I think when we see here and we look at this and, if I, and we can look at this from a couple of different angles that will help us to understand what I believe God would have us to understand. The first thing that I want you to see as you look at this parable is that the gospel works outside in. Now I say the gospel works because I believe that the leaven here is, significant, is, is symbolic of, of, the, of the gospel. We've been talking about that in every one of these parables. There is, a, there is something that Jesus has given to us that is symbolic of the gospel. In the parable of the mustard seed, it's the seed itself. And the central premise here is the, is the leaven. And the, and the reason that the gospel is central is because the gospel is the only way in which we are introduced to the kingdom. It's the only way we become part of the kingdom. It's the only thing that makes the kingdom of heaven good news for us. And if we look at this parable and we look at, at the words that, that Jesus speaks, and there's very few of them to look at, one thing that I want you to notice is that the power that affects the change in the lump of dough comes from outside the dough. The dough itself has no power to change itself. It, it just sits there like a lump of dough until the leaven is, is introduced to it. It's not until the, what essentially is yeast is, is introduced and, and leavened throughout and begins to take work that any change begins to take, uh, to, 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 uh, take place in, in the bread, in the, in, the, in the dough. And the reason that's significant is because that's the way that the gospel works. See, contrary to common thought, you and I do not have the power to ultimately change ourselves. We can change certain behaviors. We might be able to get nicer. We can dress up a little bit and clean up. and We can improve in certain ways, but in an ultimate sense, we are what we are. That's been true ever since the fall. It's not true, as many people believe, that there's a little bit of God that lives in everybody. It's just, it's just not true. It was true at one time, but that was for a very short time. As Adam and Eve lived, being made perfectly after the image of God, lived in perfect fellowship with him in perfect holiness. But once they messed up, uh, it was not true for them, and we were born with the effects of that, and then we lived those effects out every day of our lives, either in active commission of things that we know are not right, or by the fact that we just take God for granted at best. Now, we may come and we worship and we, with sincere hearts, and we do honor God with all that we are at times, but I don't know about you, but I can't keep it up. And so I move back into being occupied with other things, and I do not honor God. I do not delight in God in the way that he ought to be delighted in. I may not want to dishonor him. I may, if somebody was to prompt me, I can respond in a proper way. But he does not have constant center place in all of my attention and all of my affections. And I suspect that's true of all of you. I know it's true of most of you, and I don't even most know most of you yet. So that's, uh, that's a pretty safe thing to say because we, since the fall, have been corrupt and we have been broken and the power that is required to fix us just no longer dwells within us. It's not until the gospel is introduced into our lives. As this woman in this parable introduces the leaven into the lives, God who works actually leavens us with the gospel. It's God who takes the initiative. I mean, Paul's very clear about this in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, when he says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace that we have been saved. And he goes on and he tells us that even the gift that we received, the faith that he's given to us, it's a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. 
Paul is adamant about the fact that there's not anything that we are able to do by ourselves. We don't have the power within us to, to change ourselves. It's not until God, seeing us dead like a lump of dough, and actually worse because we were enemies with God, and God in his great love, he grabs a hold of us and he infuses to us the gift of faith. He makes us alive and he, he gives us, infuses us with the gift of faith. And the gift of faith in this is not kind of like an app that you put onto your phone that you can do other cool stuff with. It's not like when I got a computer recently and so all the, I, could, I could sign up for all the things that I needed, but I had a limited time where I could use the things. And if I didn't sign up for uh, and, and renew, uh, get a license for them, I had no power. I had the capacity. Everything was there, but I wasn't able to do it. God infuses us a very specific faith, not only the ability to believe, but specifically to believe what he has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, who loved us, who died for us, who rose again, and that by trusting in him, we are set free. God infuses us the gift of faith, not because we've earned it, not because we figured it out, but God is the one that's at work, and he just puts that into us, and like the leaven, it begins to take root, and it begins to work in us. When we trust in the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us on the cross, then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, not before. Or actually, comes with that, as God, as God comes and, and awakens us, and the Spirit dwells within those who believe. We don't have the power in ourselves, but when God works, he plants that within us. And God works outside in. The gospel comes from outside of us. God works it in us, and there's a foundation that begins to work. But while we need to understand and always remember that the gospel works outside in, we didn't figure this out. The gospel also works inside out. See, if you look at the lump of dough here that now has the leaven within it, and as the passage speaks, the ESV that I am using isn't necessarily as, as vividly clear as some other translations are. ESV says the leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures and, until it was all leaven. I mean, that's kind of circular thinking to me. Now, I like some of the other translations that talk about the leaven when it was in there. The yeast was introduced, and as it leavened, and it worked all throughout. In other words, once the leaven is in there, it begins to work, and it starts to take effect, and it's an ongoing. And those of you who bake, you've, you've seen the leavening, and you've seen the, the dough rise. You see the effect of it. Even though you may not be able to see the specific ingredient, you see the effect of that, and that's the same thing that takes place when the gospel is put into our hearts, into our lives, when God has put the, the leaven of the gospel into our hearts, effects happen. Change begins to take place. See, at the fall, where we were born, every aspect of our personality had been corrupted, and every aspect of it is dead. But over time, as the gospel begins to leaven out, it addresses every aspect of our personality, every aspect of our being. It begins to expose things that need to be cleaned up, and then they, we are able to confess those, and then it gives us the power. We have the power to be able to say no. We are able to continue to grow, and we are strengthened as the leaven continues to work all the way out, all the way through, and it impacts us completely until one day when we reach the full measure of maturity in Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. God has said, look, what I began, I will see through to the end. I put the gospel, I put the gospel in there. It's going to do its work in you. Now, it's not that we have nothing to do. God has told us over and again in the scriptures there are things that we do in order to work with the leaven, to knead the leaven throughout to make sure that it continues to work. It's not that we have the power, but as we do what God has instructed us to do, the leaven continues to work. The gospel will work all the better. It's primarily how do we remind ourselves of the gospel? How do we grow and see the gospel in the different dimensions? So we're leavening the gospel in our own hearts and our own lives, and even in the lives of one another, 
when we are coming and studying God's Word, whether it's in preaching or your own time or in Bible studies that you have, when we actually come and say, Lord, what would you speak to me? And we hear God's Word. When we converse with God in prayer, and I don't mean when we just say prayers, but when we realize that our prayers to God is a conversation, it's the conversational aspect of a loving relationship that we have with God. He's initiated with us, and we just respond. Sometimes with great thought, sometimes with just kind of shrugs, and we don't know what to say. But that's the same in any other relationship that we have that is true and real, intimate and deep. Intimate and deep. We, we speak, and we sometimes make sense, sometimes we don't. But those who love us know how to make sense of us anyway. That's what God says. That's what prayer is. And when we enter into that relationship and we pray to God, we commune with God through prayer, God's promised that not only is he hearing us, but we're communing with him. And we have the opportunity to come to this table or when somebody is baptized, not only when we were baptized the first time, and for most of us perhaps, we, have no, we can't remember the specifics. We were very young. But every time somebody is baptized, we're called to remember this, what baptism represents and that that mark has been placed upon us. And in our tradition, we call it improving on your own baptism. It's not that there was anything left undone, but it's just we're thinking about what God's grace has done and the mark of God's grace placed upon us. And we're thinking about that. Or when we're coming in faith, eating and drinking at the table, we're told that we are partaking in Christ. These things feed our soul. They, they begin to stir us. We understand the gospel. The gospel is at work, and it begins to work, maybe in ways that we won't see, or at least we don't see the work. We just see the effects of the work. But the gospel that has been put into our hearts works until the transformation takes place. That's the promise of God. So the gospel works outside in. That's how it begins. But it works inside out as well. I think a key phrase that some of the translations have, and again, the ESV doesn't, is that the gospel also works all through. ESV just says, until it's leavened, which I guess means until it's done, until the job is complete. It work, the gospel works all through. And so that's not only a promise for us uh, that God will complete the work that he has promised in us. The kingdom of heaven is what God is doing in us. We become citizens of the kingdom of heaven by his grace when the gospel takes residence in our hearts and in our lives. And it does the work, and we grow in our understanding and appreciation of that citizenship. But that's not God's only purpose, and that's not Jesus' only purpose in this parable. His only purpose is not to tell you and to me and remind us of how great our salvation is, as great as it is. I believe he's also talking about the impact that we are supposed to have. For just as the gospel is at work within us and is changing and transforming and influencing us, so God has ordained that you and I are put where we live, and put in this place and time that we would have a transforming influence on our neighbors, on our culture, and ultimately throughout the world. It's not my own idea only. Uh, New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes this. The last emphatic word in this parable is whole, all, literally until it is leavened whole. The passive is leavened points to the work of God. The whole or all must mean the nations. And so it encourages missionary enterprise with Jesus' assurance that this gospel will penetrate the whole, at least reaching the nations. Now, I, I do want to just add to that, one of the things that we need to understand what, what um, Bruner is saying is not telling us that as the gospel goes out that it's, it's going to save every individual. 
It's contrary to all of the teaching of other scripture, and so that's not, we wouldn't bring that in here. But what it is saying is it will reach all the nations and all those that God is calling to himself. The gospel will go and it will continue until it reaches all. And it brings all in. But it should be a reminder to us of the call that God has put on us as individual Christians and corporately as the church here and even broader as the church universal. We do not exist for ourselves. God didn't say, okay, I'm going to make you my children and you are going to be part of my kingdom and I'm going to bless you and I'll be at work in you and you just continue to just to grow and just go, be fed, be happy. There's truth in that, but God also has another purpose throughout the scriptures, even in the beginning, Genesis. The covenant that God made with Abram was not a covenant simply for the blessing of Abram. Abram clearly was blessed, and the promise was to bless all who are in Abram, all the descendants of Abram, of which we are if we are in Christ. But the promise that God made to Abram, he said, Abram, here's the covenant that I am making with you, and it's an everlasting covenant. I'm going to bless you, and you will be my people. I'm going to bless you that you would also be a blessing to the nations. Now we know that the ultimate blessing and the purpose behind that is that it was through Abram's seed and Abram would grow and that the, the ultimate gift that gives us the ability to become part of the kingdom of God was, was Christ that came through the line of Abram, who was the promised, promised gift. But there are also practical implications on that because as Israel's responsibility was to be a distinct people, not an impressive people necessarily. That was in their, their lack of being impressive was, gave clear evidence that it was God who had called them and was at work in them and they were God's people, that God would provide for them, God had cared for them. God's glorified even in their own weakness and insignificance, just like ours. But the purpose was that they were to be a blessing. As they lived for God, as they were a distinct people for God, the other nations would be able to see the difference between the people that live for God and their own lives. And while they're clearly, in the, or throughout the Old Testament, there's a conflict. That's a nice way of putting it. It's my counselor hat coming on. I think there are issues here, if you read through the Old Testament. If you do a study of the Old Testament, you don't have to look very far and very deep before you begin to see, in almost every encounter, there were people from the different nations that would also come in. They would believe, they would confess that the God of Israel is the one true God. He is the God above all gods. Many of them converted and became believers. Israel wasn't necessarily faithful, neither are we necessarily all the time, because Israel liked the blessings for themselves. But from the very beginning, God's plan was to bless Abram, not so that he would just simply be the caretaker and pass them on, but as God blessed Abram, that Abram himself would be a blessing to the nations, and God would bless the nations through Abram. And the same is true for those who are Christians today. We are called, we are blessed, and we are blessed in order that we would bless our neighbors, whether they believe in Christ or not, whether they like us or not, our calling is to bless them. We don't even see it in that one time. In Jeremiah, the nations, having through been, been unfaithful and having, in one sense, well, in a very clear sense, been punished and they've been scattered, they no longer had a place of their own. They were scattered around. The people who were coming back together and they were wondering, Lord, why don't you just kind of gather all of the believers and give us our own country again and let us go live by ourselves? And when that question was in their mind in Jeremiah 29, the Lord says, look, I put you where you are. Now, Go have families, go to work, make the place that you live a wonderful place. If that happens, it'll be better for you. But see, it's all part of God's original covenant, that the God's, peop God's people were scattered and in and out uh, among all of the nations in order that they would be able to be a blessing to the peoples around them, that many of the peoples would be able to come. 
and to understand the difference between God's people and God and them, that they might become God's people as well. If anyone thinks it's simply an Old Testament concept, we see Jesus picking it up not only here, but pretty clearly when he says, you are to be salt and light. You see, those are agents of preservation. Those are agents of blessing. We see it time and time again that you and I are called to be instruments of influence. We don't have the power to be the influence ourselves, but God who has planted the gospel in us, who is at work within us, he is preparing us so that we, individually and then corporately, can also be a blessing to our neighbors and to the nation so that people will be able to see the difference, that people would also know where there's hope, and that he would bring in all who it is that he is calling to himself. One of the problems, though, I found is that, and you've probably seen this too, you don't have to look far through history and perhaps even far around us to realize that sometimes Christians whether they were mindful of that dynamic or not. Trying to change the world, but they've used, I don't want to say they, we have used wrong methods to try to extend our influence over society. You can look back and see where Christians have tried to exert force through the Crusades. They're going to bludgeon people into believing. And I just have a difficult time when I think about the Crusades or any other kind of coerced faith that the person on the opposite end of the wrong end of the gun is beginning to look at the person holding the gun and saying, confess the name of Jesus is feeling the love of Christ at that point. Maybe I'm missing something. But to take militant means in order to spread the gospel is not only inconsistent with what Jesus' teaching is, is taught, it's inconsistent with his own life. And so it's just a wrong method. The, the, maybe the goal was noble. I suspect that there were other methods, other reasons besides the advancement of the gospel uh, behind such uh, activity and militant. It's probably usually because if you are in power, you get what you want. And so it's wealth, it's greed, and we like our comfort. Now, I, I suspect that, I, I doubt that any of you probably have any plans of starting a new crusade, and at least I hope not. And, in one sense, if you do, I'd like to talk with you. In another sense, I don't think I want to know you. But anyway, that's, um, and so I have to wrestle through that so that we can talk. But there's another one that's a little more subtle. I don't know if it's more subtle, but it's more, it's, it's just, we just accept it. It's politics. I'm not suggesting that Christians should not be involved in politics at all. I think that would be just flat out wrong. That's part of the way that we are involved. God has raised up all governments, all who rule over us, all who reign over us, all who are elected, even in the last election, whoever you voted for. That's who God raised up for us. That's who God has raised up all over. Christians should be involved in politics, particularly those who are called, and we have a part in the process in this country. It's part of the gift that we have been given. And so I'm not saying Christians should not be involved in politics. What I am saying is we should not assume that politics is our hope. The election ballot is not going to advance the kingdom. The election ballot is not going to hinder the kingdom either. But we rise and we fall with our emotions with every election that comes because the world's pretty much going to end um, if our guy didn't win. And while we don't mean to, and we have wonderful intentions, and we want the kingdom of God to advance, we, we are giving to Caesar what belongs to God, and giving to God what belongs to Caesar. 
In other words, saying, God, I know you have a part, I know you have a plan, but you know, really, it's the ballot box that matters. Caesar, you control all. And if I don't have the person that has got God's plan in mind that is going to rule over me, then the kingdom's doomed. We just, you know, you may not say it that way. And I say that not pointing a finger, but I've been there. I felt it. And then I felt foolish afterwards. And then I feel even more foolish the next time it happens when I felt foolish the time before. I know that this shouldn't be, but it is. And so I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm saying this is pretty common among evangelical Christians. We have somehow bought the idea that the kingdom of God is going to advance through the election. There's a place, but that's not the leaven. The leaven is the gospel. The leaven is the gospel that is at work in you, in me, through us, through all believers who proclaim the name of Christ, who are growing in, the, in Christ's reign in their lives. is becoming more and more evident. And in we, being the blessings we're called to be, we are beginning to have more and more influence, even if we have less and less power and authority. That's the distinction of the kingdom of God that we are called to be a part of. There's another one that's tempting as well. It may not be true for you and, and perhaps not for us. It's our tradition, our denomination uh, doesn't really like this, but it's, it's, it's basically going back to middle school. Just do whatever it takes to fit in and be liked. The big terms for it are compromise and syncretism. See, if we can fit into a society, if we can fit into a place that people will like us and they'll see us and then they'll like what we like and so, and everybody can just all get along. And then we'll, we think we're going to have influence. The reality is that doesn't take place because once we are conformed to whatever our environment is, we no longer have much to offer. The power is kind of isolated. It's dim. It's not that we lose our salvation because we can't be taken from God. But we don't have any power because there's no distinction between us and the world. They can look at us and they don't see any difference. Now, the subtle thing for us is to not look at the world and say, okay, this is what they do, so I'm going to do something opposite. In every culture, in every community, there are differences. There are communities in our country in our, that are very conservative, and so those who are conservative, they're going to be things that are very similar. At the same time, the gospel in those situations would say, you know what, we can be as conservative and faithful as you want, but I'm still not good enough. I am in need. I, I'm not even consistent. There are others that live cultures that are far, well, inconsistent with God's word. And obviously living faithfully in those cultures makes you distinct. And sometimes it makes you a, a target. But the distinction is clear. Fitting in only dulls the distinctions. Sometimes you'll fit in. It's not that we would make ourselves obnoxiously different. But we are shaped by the gospel that is at work within us. We live our lives in faithfulness to our king. And at some points along the way, we will look the same. At some points, we will look very different. That's for God to be at work in the hearts of the people. He's influencing the world by using us as his instruments when we are faithful. Let me just wrap it up with this. Richard Pratt's a name that some of you may know, probably not most. Richard was one of my seminary professors. Richard is also a, uh, the director or president of a ministry called Third Millennium Ministries that uh, not only trains Christians here but throughout the world uh, and helps them to grow deeper in their understanding of the scriptures. And, uh, and, and so uh, Richard is, is fairly well known. But I remember Richard one time telling a story about him. He was looking for a flashlight, or he found a flashlight in the back of the junk drawer in his house. He hadn't used the flashlight in a couple of years, and he saw it. He pulled it out, and he clicked the switch a few times. 
it, it didn't go on, and so he realized, like most of us would, the batteries are probably dead. And so he tried to open it, but it was difficult to open, and so he banged it on the table a few times and finally loosened it up and opened the thing, and he realized that the problem wasn't so much that the batteries were dead, but the batteries had corroded, and so the battery acids had, flown, had, had, had come out of, the, of, the, of its encasement and had gotten mixed up with all of the workings of the flashlight and had corroded the, the spring and, and some other things that were necessary. So he got those out, he cleaned up the flashlight, put some new batteries in and clicked it and the battery began uh, and, the, and the flashlight began to work again. But he shared that story not because he wanted to show us his technical abilities, but because he said, you know, this is a lot like us. Batteries were not created for the purpose of sitting someplace comfortably. Batteries have power within them in order to be used so that they may allow light to shine. You have the power of the gospel within you if you have received Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is oozing out and is spreading out throughout you, but it's making you more of a light in the community. Together we are a concentrated light within this community or and then we'll be spread out. Uh, one of the blessings and curses of this, this church is we'll be spread out and scattered all over. But you were created so that the power would flow through you to bring light, not to sit, sit and rest someplace. And we, as God's people, need to understand that we have that responsibility. And so it's a it's important for us to grow in the gospel. In other words, we, we learn and the power works through us. We must look at the gospel in, in a number of different ways, the way that the scripture speaks of it. As we look at it from all the different aspects that Jesus reveals through these parables elsewhere in the scripture and we begin to understand, we not only understand more, but when we understand how these different angles, different images of the gospel are at work, then our understanding deepens and then change takes place in us in ways that we might not have imagined. We need to be actively involved in our community. We cannot isolate ourselves like the batteries in the little flashlight. But we need to be out and be faithful in order that we can be the instruments of influence that God wants us to be. It's still daunting. It's uncomfortable. And some of you will be called the things that are very uncomfortable. But our hope is not in our ability to measure up. Our hope is in the gospel, and even more so in the one who has hidden the gospel in us in the first place. And his promise that he is at work, and he will continue to be at work in you and in me, even if we think we are insignificant. because God is not. Let me pray. Father, as we come to these words this morning, the illustration is very simple. The gospel itself is too. Both the illustration and the gospel are profound. I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray with not pleading, not asking, because I'm praying merely in accordance with the promise. So I pray that you would shape us and you would prepare us, that we would not only 
uh, be willing, but that we would hope for and long for your power to continue to spread out and to do the work within us. I pray in that you would also expose within us the hesitancies that we may have to be uncomfortable and maybe even unwilling to be used in the way that you would have us to be used in the community, to be the instruments of influence. Lord, if that's where our hearts are, let us not be afraid to acknowledge that. Let us lay that out before you, along with any other sin that we may have. I turn our attention to Jesus and the great love that he had for us, the great promises that he's made, and the great power that's at work. Lord, use us. As you use us, help us to delight in you more. But use us in a powerful way. Use us to bless our community. Use us to reach the nations. Use us to shine the light of Christ wherever we are. I pray in Jesus.